0: By the way, nothing that you're hearing today, everyone, should be construed as advice in any way. Jim and I have to stay out of jail.
1: And my standard line is, if you do go to jail, I'll get you out of jail no matter how long it takes.
0: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians we work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 149 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined again by now a friend of the show, Jim Giese. Jim is a JD, CPA, and a professional collaborator of mine. Jim forms what I think of as the um, sort of the perioperative committee. For physician finances, so Jim and a couple of his colleagues and I convene regularly to talk about what we're seeing out there, good planning ideas, tax developments, and all that. So, Jim, thank you for joining us today. Justin, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, a topic that is of interest and a, a recurring theme on this show, and it's it has to do with business decisions. And I have this like one page slide that I frequently show when I'm doing physician education. And I, I have these above the line considerations and below the line considerations. And this line represents sort of what you do with the money that you have. So everything below the line is like the stuff that you invest, making insurance decisions, things that you're sort of acting on the, the your existing financial infrastructure. What we're talking about today is sort of the potential, the above the line considerations, all the things out there that if you do them well, they can contribute meaningfully. To building wealth, but they aren't necessarily related to anything right now in your financial affairs. So I'm excited to bring some educational discussion today as it relates to business and partnership acquisition. Jim, maybe give a little bit of your background and the context that you have, the perspective that you bring to bear on this discussion. Well, as you noted, I'm a CPA.
1: I'm actually a JD as well, although I don't practice law. I work in a public accounting firm and I have. 40 years experience, I guess now um, as both actually a, a CFO, but mostly as a as a working as, as a tax advisor in a public accounting firm. I spent some time as a CFO at the Illinois State Medical Society. So I've got some ex- exposure there with the, the medical area and as well as a, a big four firm in the, in the healthcare group in the last 20 years, really been focusing on small businesses. And, and assisting with primarily any more what you see in, in flow through entities, it's partnerships and S Corps. And we'd be, we're going to be talking about perhaps buying into a, a partnership, an ambulatory surgery center, for example. So, provided a lot of consultation with clients, both ongoing and getting into a. What are the issues to think about when you're getting into a partnership?
0: Yeah. So, a lot of what follows will relate to. Surgery center, shares, medical practices, other ancillary medical businesses, or just other small businesses. I I don't know about you, Jim, but I see a lot of doctors who they're they're smart, they're motivated, they perceive other (laughs) areas in life in which they want to have some professional pursuit. And doctors are often entrepreneurs. And so any unrelated business, a lot of the things we're talking about today are going to apply there as well. Absolutely. The topic at hand is if you're going to buy into a business, whether it's a surgery center, medical practice, or other, there's a handful of key considerations you want to make sure that you're dialed in on, and probably you're going to be working with your CPA and probably an attorney, business attorney who can help you, and maybe even a healthcare compliance attorney who can help you understand if an acquisition makes sense and where the pitfalls are. But we're going to talk about a handful of the key considerations for how do you make sure something is a good deal and that you're a, an aware buyer. So what types of things, Jim, are on your list if somebody came to you and said, I'm interested in this kind of acquisition?
1: Right. So, so we're talking about obviously existing businesses that that typically you've been invited in to buy into this partnership. And so one of the very first things then is how did you come to the value? How did you derive what that valuation is and and what do they, you know, want you to to buy in? So, you know, a typical valuation includes three approaches, a discounted cash flow approach, which takes essentially you project out future uh, future cash flows of the business and use those for future cash flows. And you meet with management to make certain assumptions and beliefs in terms of where the organization is going, is it going to grow uh, at what pace, et cetera, and then discount that to what the current value is. The other approach is what's called a cost approach, which is if you were going to start this from scratch, what would it cost you to do it? You know, what legal fees would you have? You know, there's workforce in place. What would it cost to hire and train all those people? What would it cost to buy all the equipment that's needed in the facility? All of those kinds of things. What would it cost to build to build it? And then finally, it's is a market approach, which is going out to certain databases to see how are other similar types of organizations valued? How does the organization you're buying into, you know, what size is it in terms of revenue, in terms of net income, et cetera, uh, to, to, to what, you know, what would the market be for, for this? The the discounted cash flow is really the the it's if it was an exempt organization buying into an existing for-profit, the IRS says you have to do the discounted cash flow. And I think most valuation folks that you would talk to they believe that that's the best way to approach valuing a business and then and then the other common approach is what is referred to as ebitda earnings before income taxes depreciation and amortization so in essence what's the bottom line of the business with certain adjustments and you know what what's been published is a rule of thumb for an ambulatory surgery center is about 5 to 8 times ebitda of the business and you know the smaller it is at you know the at 250,000 that's your five times you get to 8 million and that's that's eight times if you get all the way to 500 million now maybe you get 12 times i think most of what people we would be talking about wouldn't be looking at businesses of that size so we're probably looking at somewhere between 5 and 8 times of ebitda as a kind of a rule of thumb of what the total value is.
0: And something we've talked about here in the past as well is the valuation is a function of sort of how how durable a business is, how much growth potential there is. The smaller a business is, the more inefficient it is, the more risk there is inherently that it's going to go out of business, the more dependent on a single person, a single physician, for example, it is the more your valuation is going to approach one or less than one. Meaning if a business makes a million dollars a year, I might give you a million dollars for that business. That would be a one X multiple if that's the, the EBITDA number. And so a bigger and bigger surgery center that you just described, you know, as, as a business grows, presumably, at least in this model, there is a, a durability and a, survi- uh, a solvency. Like it's more, more likely to continue to do what it's doing and therefore you're willing to pay more for a single dollar of profit with a big sustainable business than you are with a thing that if dr jones god forbid gets his butt hit by a bus tomorrow then there's no one to run his office and therefore that office is only worth a small fraction right
1: right absolutely and and how uh, how the valuation in the discounted cash flow approach how that gets taken into consideration is if there is more risk, where, for instance, in your example, we have one person who's really key in managing the facility, and if that person leaves, there's tremendous there's tremendous risk to that value, then the discount rate that gets used is much higher, and, and through the magic of math, it ends up making the value lower. So that's how you're exactly right, and that's how that risk is taken into consideration in the discounted cash flows. In an EBITDA approach, you would say there's more risk, so the multiple has to be less. Another way to look at it is, how many years should it take before I get my money back? If it's going to take five years to get my money back five times, then there should be less risk that that money's going to come back than if there's a lot of risk, well, I want my money back pretty quick. And so maybe it's a two times multiple. So that is how those things are mechanically taken into consideration. But those are absolutely things that that you have to be considering when looking at it. What's the track record? You know, what's the, what are the, you're going to ask for, what are the last, you want to see the last three years tax returns. Now, a lot of times, bigger partnerships with a lot of partners, they're not going to give you this much information and you won't have quite as much due diligence. And oftentimes it's a little bit bigger leap of faith. But if there's just a handful of partners, you definitely want to ask for those documents. You want to ask for the last three years of financials and the last three year of tax returns. Frankly, the belief is people are less willing to cheat on the tax return than a financial statement they give you. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've I've heard that. But you definitely want to look to see, do the tax returns and the financial statements agree? You know, are are they... You know, do they pay attention to detail? That's just an example from an accountant's perspective. They're paying attention to detail, which is important in running a business.
0: What other things? What's the next item on your list, Jim?
1: Well, the other thing is, is typically you're coming in as a minority interest. You're not going to own fifty-one percent coming in, and so you know what you want to make sure of is that you know what decisions do you think are really important that you would want to have a decision-making authority over a good example is can can the partnership take on debt can they go to the bank and borrow money without your approval and again depending on the size of the partnership but if it's just a handful of people you want the authority to be able to stop that because that's going to impact obviously or at the very least you know you have input into those decisions so you know what are important considerations that you have that you want to make sure you have control over? What are clinical, clinical decisions that you might have over if you're going to be working in that ASC to make sure you've got you know, some say into what's going
0: on? So that's oftentimes an issue. Yeah, I've seen this called like a board of managers or there's a managerial body that is some subset of all of the partners. Maybe there's a surgery center, maybe there's nine doctors and maybe there's an operating company that's also a big partner and the board of managers may be made up of a subset of like three doctors and one person from the operating company. And understanding, you know, if you're one of the non-manager partners, how is your destiny (laughs) going to be stewarded by the decision makers? And to what extent do you care? And maybe you don't care, you're totally passive, you just want to do your procedures and go home. And that's okay, but that has certain inherent risks that you better hope that wherever your bus is going is where you want it to go, because there's somebody behind the wheel and they're making decisions on your behalf. Right, right. So,
1: yeah. What are things that you that you think are important that you want to make sure? And so, perhaps it's part of that operating agreement or your buy-in agreement, as you're on that steering committee that makes management decisions. Now, you know, the other thing is, you know, what what legal protection does this document provide you? And And that's beyond the scope of of my commentary, you should talk to an attorney, but kind of connected with the minority interest and legal liabilities, you also want to be careful how much authority you have. Your attorney is going to advise you much more depending on the state, et cetera, that you're in. But if you have too much authority over how management is done, typically these things are limited liability companies, LLCs, And, and they're designed as an LLC to provide liability protection to you because you're not actively involved in the management of the business. You start getting too involved in the management of the business, you may not have the same legal protection that you think you have. So again, that's
0: something to talk to your attorney about. And it can also change the character of your income, active versus passive income. And this we've talked about this in the past Jim. There was a tax court ruling a little while ago, I forget maybe it was a year or two. It was it was had to do with the surgery center and it was a physician who was trying to change the character of their income for tax reasons from, I think it was to change change them to passive so that real estate could be used to, real estate income or real estate losses could be used to cancel out the surgery center income. And anyway, that's a bit in the weeds. We'll throw the link to that in the show notes. But this, this specific question, the decision-making power or ability to determine business direction that you have within an organization, there's a lot of implications in a lot of different ways. And that is another one. So you definitely want to pay careful attention to that. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So then, then now you're, now you're in the partnership. So you've determined a fair way to value it. You have, you know, you've kind of resolved the issues of where do you want, make sure that you have input as a minority owner is how do you, how, how, how are profits and losses split within the business? So now we've operated for a year and it's, it, it's had income. Well, that partnership agreement, or more likely an operating agreement as an LLC, is going to have a section that talks about how profits and losses are allocated. And the, the terminology the IRS uses is you allocate profits and losses, you distribute cash. And those are two very different things. So the net income from the business, whether you get any cash or not, if there was income, whatever portion gets allocated to you, you pay tax on. And then as that cash comes out to you, that's not necessarily a taxable event because you've already paid tax on it. But you want to look at that operating agreement and look at that paragraph that talks about how profits and losses are going to be split and make sure that is what your intention is. I mean, oftentimes it's it's split based on ownership percentages. You buy in one-third of the partnership, you get one-third of the income on one-third of the losses. One of the beauties of partnership taxation is the partnership has flexibility to allocate losses and allocate profits any way they want, as long as it has, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, sufficient economic effect. And I've, I've got that somewhat off. But it, in other words, at the end of the day, the profits and losses have to follow the cash is probably a better way to put it anyway. And so you can be creative on how you how you want to allocate those things, but you want to make sure you're looking at those paragraphs in the agreement to make sure that that how they're going to be allocated agrees with what your
0: expectations are. Do you generally find that it's just profits are allocated and cash is distributed essentially just in direct relationship to the percentage ownership of the partners most
1: often it is most often it is i mean i've certainly seen where you know i've seen it where maybe one party put in a lot more money and you know to really to fund the operation and so as a result of that that they want their money back first so I've seen that where profits are allocated first to the person that put money in until they get their return of capital. I've seen it where that person that puts a lot of money in gets what's called a preferred return. So they get it's almost almost like debt. They get 8%, for instance, on their money until they're paid back. So I have seen that. I've seen it where perhaps one party is 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 working more, if you will, and so they get, they get allocated some points. Oftentimes, that's covered under what's called a guaranteed payment. But, but generally speaking, more often than not, profits and losses are allocated based on the ownership percentage. I've seen it where I have a partnership client that the father is very wealthy, the son works in the partnership And so in years of losses, all the losses get allocated to the wealthy partner. And in in profit years, it gets allocated according to ownership percentage, in that case, 50-50.
0: So they've maximized tax. It's an interesting estate planning mechanism in that way. Yeah, yeah. By the way, nothing that you're hearing today, everyone, should be construed as advice in any way. Jim and I have to stay out of jail. (laughs) Right, right right right
1: and my standard line is if you do go to jail i'll get you out of jail no matter how long it takes that's good so then along those same lines how is cash going to be distributed and you know one would think they're the same thing but they're not necessarily so you want to make sure that you look at that paragraph that talks about how cash is distributed and again i mean where i've seen it where it's Different is where someone has put, again, someone has put more money in. And so the agreement is they get a bigger share of cash out than than the people that haven't put money in. But you just want to look at that paragraph to make sure that that's working the way you think it should. I mean, me as an accountant, when a client brings me an operating agreement, I don't opine on most of, you know, half of that dog, the, the operating agreement. That's that's clearly the attorneys, but I focus in on the allocation of profits and losses and the distributions of cash. That's where I focus my expertise in looking
0: at that agreement. What else should we be considering in looking at a prospective purchase?
1: Right. You know, and, and then, you know, the the last thing um, that I had in my notes was, oh no, I'm sorry, I take that back. But is tax distributions. You want the partnership agreement to have a paragraph in there that requires the partnership to make tax distributions of cash. I had a client years ago, had a very good year. was a non-healthcare client and due to regulatory changes, the business was going to fall on hard times for the next year. Uh, So had a very good year. Next year is going to be a really bad year. Three of the four owners were independently wealthy and could afford to pay the tax on the income that they was going to be allocated to them for last year. And the fourth partner, this course, it was an S-Corp. In this case, it was an S-Corp. He didn't have any money independently, and he was the one that ran the business. Well, he got stuck with a big tax liability with no cash to pay it. And while that was the right decision for the business, because they needed to keep that working capital in the business, it was a really bad decision for one of the shareholders. And so that was, a, that was really a lesson that was driven home to me, is make sure that if there's profits, that there is a paragraph that requires the partnership to distribute cash so that you have the cash, at the very least, to pay the tax.
0: Yeah, this is one of those things, especially for people who are sort of moving into business ownership for the first time, practice ownership, surgery center participation, the decoupling of what you just said, Jim, the allocation of profits and the cash in my checking account. Most people think when money hits my checking account, that money has taxes due on it. But the fact is cash landing in your checking account and taxes due (laughs) are totally detached once once you're a business owner. And so Creating a mechanism whereby you can not have to come out of pocket to pay for the profits allocated to you is a good way to make sure you don't get stuck like that fourth partner. Right, right, right. And that's, I mean, I have many clients that have
1: been flow through entities like this for years, and it—it—it it, it is a very confusing concept. You know, I get the question often that if I take cash out of the business, isn't that a taxable event? And and it's, it's not because you've already paid tax on it when that income was allocated to you. And the only exception to that would be if you take out more cash than over time you've paid tax on, you know, and how could that happen? Maybe the business went and borrowed money from the bank. And and so the cash you're getting is not from previous profits. It's really money borrowed from the bank. So that's how that can happen. But generally speaking, just when you get cash, that is not a taxable event.
0: Makes sense. Now let's talk about exiting Okay. and everything is going to have a life cycle for a business. There's the evaluation, the acquisition, the operation, and then eventually the liquidation. So what types of things are on the radar as far as looking for landmines upon sale?
1: Okay. And, and it's important to think about the exit when you're getting in. Yes. Right. Absolutely. A little, I guess it's a little bit like a prenuptial agreement when you're getting married. I suppose, but but you want to have an agreement among the parties. If one party wants to leave, maybe it's you. Maybe it's not you. It's somebody else. Well, then, what do we pay that person getting out? Or what am I going to get when I go out for my share uh, of the business? And so you really you you need to agree the best is and have that in the operating agreement as to how it is that we've agreed we're going to value this business when one party leaves. And you know what I've seen in my my practice and I I worked for a wealthy family for about 3 years that had 300 partnership agreements and what we frequently saw in their partnership agreements was either party can put in a number and then the other party can either buy me out. So I say, you know, we're 50-50 and it's worth $100. Now I've just given you, Justin, the option. You can buy me out for $100 or I can buy you out for $100. So that forces me not to put too low of a number on what I'm offering you to buy your share because you can turn around and 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 buy my share for that. So that's that's one option that i've seen in practice i have seen in agreements where both parties hire an expert so both parties get their own valuation expert and then compare notes if those two don't agree there's a there's a third expert hired and i've never seen that actually i've seen it in documents i've never seen it actually happen because usually each party has a valuation expert. There's somewhere in the middle that typically that you can meet. But again, what we're talking about is how are we going to approach it, and we've we've agreed how we're going to approach it. You can agree we're going to have a a formula. It's going to be six times EBITDA, and and. You know, at the end of the prior year, we're going to take what that EBITDA number is times six times my percentage ownership, and that's the valuation. So you've agreed to an approach to doing it. I had a client that they were financial advisors and it was a stock company. And in January of each year, they would, we had done a valuation for them, they determined some, some metrics from that valuation. And every year at their January board meeting, they reset the price of the stock. So they agreed based on the prior year, this is what each share of stock is worth. And that was memorialized in the minutes for that meeting. So then everybody had agreed if they wanted to get out, that was the price that, that and unfortunately, one partner died in a in a traffic accident and, and it worked. I mean, it was executed. There was life insurance in place. So I guess that's another thing that an offshoot that we could talk about is, you know, how do you make sure that there's money there? God forbid there's a horrific accident. How does that person get bought out? How does the business have the wherewithal to pay the family for their share of the profit? And life insurance is oftentimes a consideration in these. Or, you know, the other thing I've seen is just a metric, kind of like the one I mentioned. They set the price of their stock. I've seen it where. Again, the EBITDA or maybe something based on revenue. You know, it's worth worth X times revenue. And, and then so it's really easy. It's it's objective to what that is. When I I throw out net revenue, oftentimes revenue is not a real good way to value a medical practice because there's, you know, there's a big diversity in in different areas in terms of how profitability each entity is. And obviously, if you just compare to revenue, a very, very well-run managed operation is not valued then as highly as one that's poorly managed that has little net profits. But those are some some variations on that theme.
0: And then another important part of sort of putting a bow on a liquidation is understanding tax consequences, which is probably a little more Beyond the scope of today's immediate discussion, but understanding capital gains, tax versus ordinary income, and the degree to which that can be you know, negotiated or offset. Anybody who missed last week's episode, episode 148, we talked about creating capital loss carry forward through tax loss harvesting. This is one of those situations where it comes in handy if you're harvesting losses in, for example, your investment portfolio, creating a capital loss carry forward. And then you're someone who liquidates a surgery center share and earns significant pro- uh, well profit for our purposes. We'll call them long-term capital gains. If you make a million bucks in a transaction like that, you can offset some of that million bucks with any loss carry forward. But you're going to want to work closely with a CPA and also probably the attorney to understand the deal structure and the, what that means in terms of the composition of the income. Specifically, capital gains – versus ordinary income. Ordinary income is obviously a much higher tax bracket. And then seeing what the bottom line is to you. Right. And as you noted it probably goes
1: beyond the scope of this, but when you're when you're selling an interest in a partnership, there are items in the partnership that are deemed to be hot assets are called and accounts receivable would be one of those. And so if you sold out of an operating business that had a lot of accounts receivable, which probably wouldn't be, um, probably would be typical. Those accounts receivable are going to be taxed as ordinary income. If there is a building involved, you may want that to be treated as a redemption instead of a sale of your interest because there are certain recaptures of depreciation that are taxed differently. And you raise a good point. That's always a valid point. Is make sure that you're talking to Justin and your tax advisor in November. How do my gains and losses match up? Um, this wealthy family that I worked for, we always did projections across all of their entities in October to make sure if we were selling a business and we had a big gain in the sale of that business, that if there were losses somewhere else, that we made sure we harvest harvested those losses as justin's terms to so that they offset each other so definitely i would come into the case here and and really is a is good advice in any event every year but you definitely want to get your your attorney or accountant involved in how you structure the deal and it's really not on the way in this would be on the way out how you structure what it is when you sell to get out because there can be varying degrees of tax
0: consequences depend, depending on how you allocate the purchase price. So anybody who's sitting on our practice right now and is slowly backing towards the exit and thinking oh my gosh I have not talked to the appropriate tax people. I'll put Jim's contact info in the show notes apmsuccess.com/149 you can find that there. In addition there's the link for CME if anybody wants to grab some CME credits which I'm continuing to offer for free for a limited time. Uh, you can do that there in the show notes. Jim Gesey, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for lending your expertise to APM Success.
1: Justin, as always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.